Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Hawley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. I'm Eleanor Wachtel, and this is Writers and Company from the Archives. Today, looking back at one of the most celebrated American writers, Philip Roth. From Goodbye Columbus and Portnoy's Complaint to The Plot Against America. Philip Roth died in 2018, but his legacy lives on. I felt a real sense of loss about the death of Philip Roth, whose work I'd followed for most of my life. When I met him in 2009, it was not long after the death of his older brother and several close friends, and he talked a lot about death and how the eulogy had become his most frequent mode of expression. He'd already written his last novel, Nemesis, though it wasn't yet published, and he hadn't yet announced that it would be his last, that he was going to retire. Although for more than a decade his subject had been the ravages of aging and mortality, it wasn't that he was morbid. In fact, he depicted the end of life with the same acerbic wit and incisive analysis that fueled the ebullient sexuality of his earlier work. And just to turn it around among his later novels, Indignation and Nemesis, were about young men caught in difficult, morally ambiguous situations. Philip Roth was a powerful, political, and irrepressible writer whose admirers ranged from Carol Shields, who pressed American pastoral on me when I'd sort of stopped reading Roth for a while, to Zadie Smith, who gave the inaugural Philip Roth Lecture at the Newark Public Library in October 2016. An outspoken, even provocative, and as critic James Wood put it, a necessary writer. Philip Roth won a National Book Award for his very first title, a 1959 novella called Goodbye Columbus and Five Short Stories. He subsequently won virtually every honor and prize in American literature, some twice or even three times, the Pulitzer, the Penn Faulkner Award, the National Book Critics Circle Award, and the Penn Saul Bellow Award. During a five-year period in the 1990s alone, he won all four of the leading American literary prizes for four different books. And in 2011, he won the $100,000 International Man Booker Prize for Lifetime Achievement. In 2017, when his collected nonfiction came out, Philip Roth was the only living American writer to have his work published in a comprehensive, definitive 10-volume edition by the Library of America. This made him officially an American classic, alongside Melville, Hawthorne, Fitzgerald, and Faulkner. At the same time, a novel which didn't win any prizes is the book that totally changed his life, Portnoy's Complaint, The Intimate Confessions of Alexander Portnoy, a young man, well, precisely Roth's age at the time, it provoked controversy for its sexual candor and obsessiveness, as well as its depiction of an overbearing Jewish mother. Portnoy's complaint sold 400,000 copies in hardback in the first six weeks after it was published in 1969. 
It went on to sell more than three million copies in paperback. It was a phenomenon, and Roth fled from the fame. He bought a house in Connecticut and lived there on and off for the rest of his life. Philip Roth was born in 1933 in Newark, New Jersey, a place that became the setting for a number of his novels, including his last one, Nemesis. Roth wrote more than 30 books, including memoirs about his father and his own early writing life, though even these were ambiguous since Roth was intensely engaged in the creation of alter egos and the blurring of reality. As one critic said, Roth has been the great stealth postmodernist of American letters, and that was before postmodernism itself was fashionable. In 2012, Roth declared that he wouldn't be writing any more fiction and largely withdrew from public life. A post-it note on his computer read, The struggle with writing is done. When I went to see Philip Roth in 2009, he had just come out with a new novel called The Humbling, and in 2014 it was made into a movie starring Al Pacino and Greta Gerwig. I spoke to him at his bright and airy apartment on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. It was 50 years ago that your first book, Goodbye Columbus and Five Short Stories, was published to critical acclaim and controversy. You were just 26 years old. When you think of yourself at that age, what do you remember most? How do you see yourself? Well, as a writer, I was raw, I think. Uh, whatever I wrote came spontaneously out of me. I wasn't... Uh, I, I was a smart young fellow, but I wasn't extremely reflective about what I was working on. And so those are, those first attempts were spontaneous attempts at writing fiction. And uh, I would just say I was raw and young. What does raw mean, actually? Um, a tenderfoot. How much can you know at 26? You know, so, so you can be very smart in school, etc. But my experience had been, had been limited uh, because of my age. I'd had a protected upbringing. I was uh, prodigious, but not learned. Because uh, you've described your younger self as fervent about almost everything. Yes. Well, I was kind of intense, I think, yes. One of the stories in that first book, Defender of the Faith, had already caused a stir when it was published in The New Yorker. Were you prepared for that kind of reaction? No, I wasn't prepared for any kind of reaction. I had studied literature in school and uh, had no idea what happens when you publish and the work goes out to the world, not just to school children. Uh, no, I was completely, completely taken by surprise. And um, I was able to meet the challenge, I think, but uh, I was quite astonished, really. Can you tell me more about what Well, happened? because the, the, the accusations that were made against me as a result of Defender of the Faith were that I was anti-Semitic and that I was a self-hating Jew. This is because it was about a, a, a soldier who tries to corrupt another soldier or win favors from his, yeah. from his sergeant because he was Jewish? Yes, yeah. I wouldn't say it was an intelligent response, but it was a, spo it was a spontaneous response too. And uh, I got a letter from the um, B'nai B'rith Anti-Defamation League asking if I would meet with um, two of the fellows from the Anti-Defamation League to talk about my story. So I did. They were extremely reasonable, and they just said they were responding to a message they'd gotten from their constituents, but that they didn't share these feelings. So it passed over. But um, for a while, I wasn't a favorite of uh, certain Jewish establishment figures. And what impact do you think it had on you as a writer? 
I don't think any in the long run. That material gradually became a subject for me, and I used it as a subject in The Ghost Rider, I think. But uh, I don't think it changed my writing at all. As I say, it furnished me with the subject. In your book, The Facts, a novelist's autobiography, you describe your experiences in the 1950s in a small liberal arts college in, in Pennsylvania. And it's, a, it's a period that you return to in your last novel, Indignation. But you describe how you're earnestly reading your way through English classics, never imagining that your own background could provide rich material for mm-hmm. fiction. In your early stories, you say there, there weren't any Jews, there, were, there wasn't Newark, there wasn't even a sign of comedy. Mm-hmm. How did you discover your, your subject, your voice as a writer? It's true that in these first attempts, first naive attempts, I wrote stories about things I didn't know anything about. And then slowly I began to turn to my old neighborhood. And uh, I think I may have been inspired, I'm not sure, but I may have been inspired in part by fiction of Saul Bellow and Bernard Malamud, who had been able to take their material, which was the Jewish world that was near at hand, and convert it into distinctive fiction. And uh, I think I was helped by uh, their example, really. I was wondering, I was going to ask you back about Saul Bellow and the, particularly The Adventures of Augie Marsh, which, which came out in, in, in 1953 with a, this new energy and perspective and a famous bold opening line, I'm an American Chicago born and his influence. Yeah. Saul's example, perhaps more than his influence, his example was um, tremendously important to me because uh, what he demonstrated with this material was freedom. That he was so fr- he wasn't contained by the, the the species of Jewish story that had existed before him, rather he reinvented the whole thing with his tremendous freedom. Uh, Malamud was um, was a less freewheeling writer, but nonetheless he was converting the stuff of jokes, the stuff of Jewish jokes, the stuff of folk tale, into a very resonant superior fiction. When you recall your upbringing in Newark, New Jersey, you talk about energy and exuberance and and a feeling of being expansively American. Can you describe that world that shaped you, what it meant to grow up Jewish and American in in the 30s Mm. and 40s? Mm. Well, I grew up American, and I grew up Jewish. But the American component absorbed everything else. We were American kids in the streets. This is before you saw skullcaps on Jews in the streets, as you do now over in Brooklyn. Our relationship with the synagogue was extremely loose. We uh, attended when we had to for bar mitzvah lessons. I attended Hebrew school for three years after school uh, to prepare me for my bar mitzvah. But the day after my bar mitzvah, I was a free man. And I got a pardon from the governor, and I was free. <laughs> and I think that's you're, from true. your parents too. I mean, yes, my of... parents understood. I did what I was obliged to do, and I did it well, and they were grateful for that. But they never expected anything more. And they were totally Americanized. They were both born in New Jersey. Their parents were immigrants, but that first generation of people born in America, born at the turn of the century, did an amazing uh, a feat of, tra- of self-transformation and made themselves into uh, Americans thoroughly. With a Jewish loyalty, Jewish allegiances, a Jewish tenor to the life, but the two things were not in conflict, 
and they fit together very nicely, really. Did it surprise you in some way? I mean, it's a funny question to say it surprised you because you, you're the guy doing the writing, but to discover the degree to which Jewish subjects would become your subject? Uh, yes, it did surprise me. In fact, my first book, which Houghton Mifflin published in 1959, I had submitted about 10 short stories with uh, the novella Goodbye Columbus, and my then editor selected the, just the ones that focused on the Jewish background. So they, in a way, formulated the, uh, the thrust of my career. And um, yes, I was surprised, but it, it was I shouldn't have been because I knew about regionalism in American writing, and uh, I knew people wrote about where they came from. So I was essentially writing about where I came from. The people where I came from weren't Nebraskans or Chicagoans. They were Newark Jews. You've written a lot about your father, but less so about your mother, uh-huh. who, from the sounds of it, was certainly nothing like Sophie Portnoy, and the, the famously overbearing mother in mm-hmm. Portnoy's Complaint. Can you say why you write less about her? I don't know. I don't know. Probably because my relationship with my father was tenser, was had more tension in it, and uh, strains and um, difficulties. Whereas my relationship with my mother was, um, she adored me and my brother. And uh, when I got to be 12 or 13, she became rather taciturn, uh, afraid of my my mouth, that I was smart, I could talk back, I could be cutting. And uh, she never uh, did anything but help me. My father was... Uh, Difficult when I began to be independent. He was not prepared for my independence and didn't know how to take it. So he he had to be educated. And so I educated him. (laughs) How? How? We had some knock-down, drag-out fights. Strangely, uh, when he became an older man, and I remember visiting him in Florida after my mother died, we were taking a walk one day, and I was reminding him of a really, the worst argument we ever had. And he had no recollection of it whatsoever. So uh, he was more prepared for the rough and tumble of life than I was. He was ready to, as the song, hold on to the good and let the bad yes, go by. Yes, kind of, yeah. yeah. Certainly you, you, you capture him with, with tenderness and, and, uh, and sometimes frustration in your books, the facts and, and patrimony. How do you think he had been shaped by growing up in his America? Hmm. Well, he was, um, like all of us, totally shaped by where he came from. The biggest factor in his life, even for him, was that he had no education. Uh, Like his brothers, he attended school until the eighth grade, and then he went to work in the factory. And uh, they all helped bring in an income for the family. And uh, he felt limited by that. He made a success in his chosen field anyway. He became a manager for Metropolitan Life and had a big office with some, big office with some 60-odd men in it that he ran, and he did it very effectively and was rewarded for it. But he always felt, I think, that uh, he might have benefited by more education. It wasn't a, a refrain you heard from him, but it was a sense I had. And that's why he very much wanted my brother and I to be educated. But that was it. the desire for the young to be educated was the ideal of the whole community, really. And he certainly had a, a great love of America. I mean, it, it seems like that's something else that you got from oh, him, yes. was that? Absolutely. He loved to vote. 
Maybe everybody likes to vote. Because he loved to vote because the person he voted for always won. It was Roosevelt. So it was <laughs> from 1932 to 1946, every time he voted, he voted for the right person. But he, uh, he had a citizen's instincts. And uh, during the war, he was an air raid warden. And uh, when he retired, he did all kinds of uh, volunteer work. And he was a good citizen. You've joked that your father was the bard of Newark. And narrative that you, you write in your book, The Facts, is the form that his knowledge takes. And his repertoire has never been large. Family, 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 Newark, 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 Jew, Jew, Jew. Somewhat like mine, you say. Was this something that you were able to appreciate in him when you were young? I think when I was very young, yes. Because um, the dinner table was uh, full of stories being told about uh, the, the people he saw in the insurance business, about people on the street. So the lore, the lore of the neighborhood came in through, uh, largely through my father. And uh, my mother, to some degree, my mother was very active in the PTA. She was president of the PTA for two years when I was in grade school. So I was a special child. My teacher knew my mother. So uh, I got um, a rich dose of um, social background from the two of them, really. And as, you, as you've grown and, and gone on, on with, without him, do you feel like that you're like your father in, in any sort of essential ways? Well, I, were, I he was a hard worker, and um, he worked uh, long hours and very hard, and I too work long hours and very hard. So I think I absorbed uh, from both my parents a very powerful uh, ethic of, of work. Philip Roth, another milestone is that 40 years ago, 10 years after the publication of Goodbye Columbus, came Portnoy's Complaint, a book full of comedy and rage. Portnoy wasn't a character for me. You've said he was an explosion. Mm -hmm. How so? Well, I had written uh, three respectable books prior to Portnoy's Complaint, Goodbye Columbus, even though it caused a certain flurry in a certain world, it was really a very mild book. Uh, Letting Go, which was a very serious and responsible novel. And When She Was Good, which was a very serious and responsible novel. And uh, I hadn't found the way to make room for that comedy you speak of. And um, in coming up with the situation of a man talking to a psychoanalyst, I gave myself that freedom that I value so much. Because in the... Um, game of psychoanalysis, uh, the patient is invited to say anything. So I now have that same liberty as a writer because I was pretending to be the patient. And the result was um, explosive. I, I was reading somewhere that uh, you were asked if you were influenced in any way by the various stand-up comedians like Lenny Bruce. And uh, you said you were influenced by the famous sit-down comedian, Franz Kafka. Yes. And I was trying to put that together. How? Uh, yeah. Well, because uh, Kafka's story that he returns returns to is as a vet person who is imbued with a powerful sense of guilt, perhaps out of proportion to uh, his world or to the promptings of that world. And uh, Portnoy is in a similar bind. He isn't Joseph K., but he's Alex P. He's trying to shed his guilt. The publication of Portnoy's Complaint was a, a turning point for you. I, mean, I think I think you said it determined every important choice that you made during the next decade. How did Portnoy change your life? Well, I had to escape it. 
No sooner did I publish it than I had to escape it because it was a colossal success and a colossal notorious success. And um, I was typecast as a result of that book as a crazed uh, sexual madman. And I wrote, I'd written a book about a crazed sexual madman, speaking quotation marks, but the identification with the character carried over to me so that I was this person. So I tried to elude that description. And um, I received a tremendous amount of attention after that book. And I wasn't used to it. I had attention on the street, you know. And I lost my anonymity. I used to walk along the street like anybody, just thinking my own silly thoughts and whistling. And uh, if I whistled on the street now, someone would say, Stop whistling, Portnoy! So I, I disappeared at that point. I left New York, which I wouldn't have done, I think, had I not published that book. I left New York and I bought a house in the country and um, moved there and uh, stayed there really for the rest of my life, much of the time. And your parents, as you've described them, were always very supportive of you and your writing. Did it ever cause problems for them? Oh, sure. People had fun taking pot shots at them. My my father began to defend me with with all his friends. I said to him, that's a losing game. They're not going to buy it. The best thing to say to them is, you don't know how awful he is. <laughs> that's the only game you can win at, you know. But he persisted in defending me and uh, also in giving copies of my book away. He, he and my mother took a trip on a ship and my father took a load of my books with him, Portnoy's complaint, and would say to the people on the boat, do you want a copy of, an autographed copy of my son's book? They didn't care one way or the other. But he, and so he would sign, Herman Roth, Philip Roth's father. <laughs> <laughs> he was irrepressible. He read it? Sure. He I mean, he knew what was in it, obviously. He knew what was in it, yeah. And, and he didn't mind his own depiction as being chronically constipated, well, among other things. It wasn't his depiction. Yeah. No, he was a very different man from Mr. Portnoy. Although you were, had some inkling that the book might cause a reaction because you warned your parents before it came yeah. out. Well, I knew, it was, I, I knew what was going to happen. I, again, I didn't gauge the size of it. Uh, I didn't gauge the, uh, the tenor of it exactly. But uh, yes, I knew and I prepared them. And uh, they came into New York. They lived in New Jersey. They came into New York one day. I had lunch with them. And I said, look, this is what's, going to, this is what's happening, about to happen. This book is going to come out, and it's going to cause a big furor. And in the course of this furor, you're going to be contacted by journalists. And you have, you have no experience with this, so I'm going to tell you that when the journalists call you, they're going to do everything they possibly can to talk to you. Now, if you want to talk to them, that's fine with me. But if you really think you don't want to talk to them, then just say, sorry, I can't help you. And when they insist, which they'll do, you can hang up. It's perfectly all right. And... Uh, this went on for quite a while. I prepared them for what was going to happen. And then they left. They went back to New Jersey. Uh, only years later, after my mother died, my father told me that on the way in the car going back to New Jersey, my mother burst into tears. And my father said, what's the matter? He said, he has illusions of grandeur, and he's going to be so disappointed, and I can't stand it. So uh, that's what she thought. But as you've described yourself, you were a realist, and you had, in fact... 
no delusions at all, I think, in terms of... Well, I, as I said, I, 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 even if you're prepared for something, you're often not prepared for it as well. Yeah. Skipping ahead a decade to another milestone, in, in, uh, the, this is the, the first appearance of your fictional alter ego, or as I think you described him once, alter brain, Nathan Zuckerman, was 30 years ago, in 1979, mm-hmm. uh, making his debut in your novel, The Ghost Writer. Uh-huh. Zuckerman has been a central presence in, in your fiction through Zuckerman Unbound, The Anatomy Lesson, The Counterlife, and, and finally Exit Ghost a, a couple of years ago. And he makes appearances in some other books mm-hmm. as well. This character, where did he come from? What, what made him so useful to you, so enduring? Mm. Well, useful is the right word. He um, came out of my need for an intelligent voice to organize those novels. He's an intelligence. He's a shaping intelligence. He guides the reader through the early books, and he narrates the stories in the later books, in American Pastoral, I Married a Communist, and The Human Stain. In those last three books that I mentioned, he's telling somebody else's story, not his own. His story is over as far as he's concerned. And then in Exit Ghost, he tells his own story of, of, the, of the end of his uh, writing life, the end of his erotic life, the consequences of old age. The usefulness continued, and so I continued with him. And when, by the time I got to Exit Ghost, I realized that, realized that this was the end and that uh, I would do myself a favor by retiring him. Just to go back to the usefulness in the earlier stories where he was more of an, an actor, in, a player, rather mm-hmm. than, let's say, I don't know, a Conrad Marlowe-like narrator. Right. Why would you need that sort of an alter ego? I mean, what is it's to incorporate some characteristics of yourself, but distance it, and at the same time, make him a viewer and critic of you in some way. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of his, he has a role, a sort of parenthetical role in, in your book, The Facts, where he comments mm-hmm, on the mm-hmm. Philip Roth character, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. to speak, and says, I am your permission or your indiscretion, mm-hmm, or, you know, he mm-hmm. criticizes, he's, you know, mm-hmm. he, he calls you on being honest or not. Um, I would go back to the word I used earlier, which is intelligence. I needed a means to get my own intelligence into the books. I did it in a way in letting go. I didn't do it in When She Was Good or even in Goodbye Columbus. But I wanted to get my own intelligence into the books. I wanted to be able to comment on the action. I wanted to be able to think out loud. And uh, this character became the voice of my thinking out loud. And um, he was a writer, which was terribly useful to me too, because he could narrate through imagination. He could narrate the stories of others. And he even wrote a flamboyant bestseller called Karnofsky, which yes, sure. bore some similarities to Portnoy. There's something in, intriguing about the similarity, but different. Is that part of Well, like any writer, if you use aspects of your life, it's because the familiarity excites your verbal energy. What you're trying to do all the time is excite your verbal energy. And whatever will do that, you use. So you exploit yourself just as ruthlessly as you exploit some other people. And the the goal is to create excitement on the page. Because it's not just uh, Nathan Zuckerman. You've also developed various other alters, so to speak, Mm -hmm. uh, Portnoy or 
David Kepesh that, that have grown with you through the years, mm -hmm. and they and they serve parallel functions in different yes in different yeah. ways. Kepesh to Kepesh, I've assigned the the role of um, revealing his sexual life. Zuckerman doesn't, you know. I know what when Exit Ghost came out, people wrote about Zuckerman as a sexualized character. It's the last thing he is in the American pastoral, American communist, and human stain. Human stain. He's impotent and incontinent as a result of prostate cancer. That's in, in the three big books there. In Exit Ghost, he's also impotent. In the early books, when he's when he's not before the prostate surgery, his sex life plays a very minor role in, in, in those books. In The Ghost Rider, it's about Lanoff's affair with Amy Blett. In uh, Zuckerman Bound, Zuckerman Unbound, rather, it's not about his sex life at all. It's about his fame. And uh, in The Anatomy Lesson, yes, there, there are some women in the book, but the point about that book is a kind of study of pain. So uh, he was never... Uh, sexualized character. The one I have as a sexualized character is Kepesh, and I've assigned those stories to him, you see. As, as you were saying, Nathan Zuckerman is, is gone now. He made his last appearance two years ago in Exit Ghost, and, and you said at the time of, of the book's publication that you wouldn't miss him. What is life like now for you without well, Nathan? Well, it's forced me to imagine other, other souls. I think since Exit Ghost, I've written um, Indignation, and uh, The Humbling, and I've written a third book, which will come out a year from this fall, called Nemesis. It's about a polio epidemic in Newark in 1944. There was no such an epidemic, but I've invented one, but that's what it's about. And so, I, and each of these three books has a different hero. And each book required that I had to reimagine uh, or imagine for the first time somebody. And I don't think I would have done that if I were still hanging on to Zuckerman, no one have imagined any of these books. These books required the narrators they have. So you don't miss them? No. Perfectly all right with me. Hey, my name's Jamie Poisson, and I'm the host of Frontburner. It's the CBC's daily news podcast. And every day we're discussing the big events and fault lines shaping Canada and the world. Politics, economics, social movements, you name it. Sometimes we even talk about really fun stuff like the enduring relevance of Lord of the Rings. You can hear Frontburner on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. A response to the larger world has, has often fueled your work. For instance, uh, in, in that trilogy of novels uh, on post-war American life, American Pastoral was set in Vietnam era. I Married a Communist was during the McCarthy era. The Human Stain in the 1990s. And then continuing through other books, uh, The Plot Against America, even Exit Ghost and Indignation mm -hmm. have a somewhat political dimension. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about your continuing interest in, I don't know what we call them, American social history? Mm -hmm. uh, what sparks your, your curiosity? Well, I think what sparked it in a way was for 12 years I didn't live, I didn't live in America. By and large, I was living in London from 1976 to 1988, I was living in London. And um, I was writing the Zuckerman books. And uh, when I came home to live here again, it was, uh, I came home with great relief because I was frightened that I was losing touch with what was going on here. But when I returned, I realized that I had a new subject, which was an old subject, which was America. And that Everything was fresh to me, but I knew all about it. 
This is this is a perfect situation. And it was shortly after that that I began to write these books, which had an American backstory, and it would be even beginning with the uh, Sabbath Theater. Sabbath Theater has a lot to do with Mickey Sabbath's brother being in World War II, and Mickey Sabbath's life has changed by the fact that his brother is killed in the war. This is the great grief he bears through life. It determines his character to a great degree. And so I was able to write about World War II. And then in the books you spoke about, I think that was partly a result of having been away so long, coming back to this place refreshed and seizing upon this material as though it were brand new to me. Plot Against America is probably, well, in some ways, you're most different from the others, although in other ways, not so much, because mm -hmm. again, it's, there's Philip Roth's family is in it as mm -hmm. well. But mm -hmm. in terms of conjuring up, um, it's not an historical novel because it's reinventing the, the history that of what might have happened in, mm -hmm. in the Second World War. Yeah. Where did that come from? Um, that came from uh, something I read, if you want the, the initiating thing. I was reading Arthur Schlesinger's uh, autobiography. Alas, he died before he could write more than the first volume. This is the first volume. And when I got to 1940 in the book, he said that there were people in the Republican Party who wanted to nominate Lindbergh and run against Roosevelt. But of course, that never happened. I was intrigued by that line, and I marked it in my copy, and I knew Arthur was a friend. We had lunch together, and I said, tell me about that. Uh, well, there wasn't much to tell. It was it, it died the instant it had been conceived. But I uh, asked Arthur to tell me what he remembered about Lindbergh. I had my own memories, even though I was a small child. He was Lindbergh was a was an antihero in our house, and um, an antihero because of his anti-Semitism. His anti-Semitism, sure, and his his uh, feelings towards the Nazis. So when I finished whatever I was working on then, I began to just say, suppose this had happened. Suppose the Republicans had nominated Lindbergh. What then would have happened? And the book is really a what-if book. What if this had happened? What would have followed? It's actually Nathan Zuckerman who once described himself as having lived enthralled by America for three quarters of a century. Is it that way for you? Well... Yes, but not only for me. I think most thinking people are uh, intrigued by um, life in this country and uh, sometimes mystified by it, sometimes disappointed in it. But uh, it's a big experience being an American. A big experience? Yes, sure. Sure. Because... Well, because the American world is so unpredictable. It's so uh, promising and so disappointing. The country's always making itself. The radical change is the law of the land, whether it's the political changes or the technological changes or the industrial changes. The country is just change, change, change. That's the tradition. And um, you can lose touch as I felt I'd lost touch when I left the country, yeah. And when you came back, you were caught again in, in the that hope and disappointment? Is sure, yeah, yeah. I think we go through it all the time, on a daily basis. You, you return in your recent fiction to the historical period in which you came of age, uh, in, in terms of your last novel, Indignation, set during the Korean War. Uh, 
in, in a small conservative Ohio college. What took you back to that particular period of your life? I mean, it's not you, but it's mm, no, even, it, it isn't. It wasn't my experience. Yeah. Um, Korea. In thinking about the books I'd written with American background, I realized that there was one period I'd never dealt with, and that was that that strange Korean War period when I was a college student. And um, I wanted to write about somebody living through that period when the dr the draft was over our heads, and there was no, it wasn't it wasn't like the Vietnam draft where you could actually consider leaving the country or becoming a draft dodger. It was too close to World War II to think that you could avoid military service. It just wasn't done. And that was the backdrop to my own college years. Because you were born in 33, so you, in, during the Korean War, you would have been about 20. Well, the Korean War started in 1950, so I was uh, 17. To 20. Right. And it lasted until 1953, I believe. So I was 20. So I was, I was cannon fodder, really. Now, I am, um, Unlike my character, I, I, I was drafted, but the war was over. I was drafted in 54, I guess, 55, and uh, the war had ended. So I imagined um, not just the war as a background, but the, the moral ethos of that period in a college. I tried to recreate that, which is the ethos of rules, regulations, and surveillance, which was very strong in that period, just as strong as I depicted it. And we didn't know the difference. Because it, was, it, was, it wasn't the 60s yet. Exactly. Mm -hmm. the, the central character in Indignation, Marcus Messner, is, is a good boy, a dutiful boy. He's trying to learn and get straight A's. He's pursuing a goal. His father is an extreme worrier and, and warns him. And this seems to be the almost the, the moral premise of the novel because he's the, the father's warning of the tiniest misstep can have tragic consequences. Mm -hmm. Uh, the father overstates it and turns out to be right in the case of his own son. But uh, I wanted this boy to try to flee surveillance. And uh, in that era, he can't. When he flees the surveillance of his father to this little college out in the Midwest, he comes under the surveillance of the college. He's a kind of premature 60s character, isn't he? He's trying to free himself from these repressive bonds. Though he can't identify them by name, but he just knows that he's not a candidate for repression. Yeah. Though that isn't strictly, that isn't true, strictly speaking. When he gets involved with a young woman, she is a freer spirit than he is, and her freedom bewilders him. It, it alarms him almost. Yes, it alarms him, yeah. Philip Roth, aging has been the preoccupation of much of your recent fiction through The Dying Animal, Every Man, Exit Ghost, and, and your new novel, The Humbling. And you said when you wrote Patrimony, your very poignant account of your father in old age, which came out in 1991, you said you thought that you knew, you knew what you were talking about, but that you didn't really. But that journey of discovery, as, as all your books are, in a sense, acts of discovery, where has it taken you? What, what do you feel you know now? It's quite an education, getting older or getting old. And uh, one of the forms the education takes is the death of one's friends. One is prepared in life for the death of one's grandparents, the death of one's parents, if it happens in the right sequence. No one is ever prepared for the death of a child. 
But what happens when you reach a certain age, much to your surprise, is that your friends who may be anywhere from 5 to 15 years older than you, when you reach 60, they're 75. When you reach 65, they're 80. They begin to die. And uh, this came to me as a great uh, shock and revelation. And um, then uh, friends of mine became sick. I've had my own illnesses, but these were serious ones that that were fatal. So you become used to the hospital, you become used to the cemetery, you become used to the literary form of the eulogy, which you begin to become expert at. And so it wasn't just my own reaching this age, but my friends and uh, colleagues and so on reaching it and seeing what was happening to people. So that prompted every man. Every man was about illness in a way, but it, it, the, the man's life is seen through the history of his illnesses. Um, and it starts with his funeral. It begins with his funeral, yes. He, he dies during an operation. It ends uh, with the operation. <laughs> it ends with the operation, right. And uh, the dying animal, I guess, preceded every man. And that really has more to do with lust and um, the... Uh, attempt on the part of Kepish to be a sexualized creature even as he advances in age and the complications that follow. Exit Ghost, as we've said, is about Zuckerman. You can't, you can't be assigned a sexual meaning only. Exit Ghost is about a last attempt to live a charged-up life and uh, finding himself, he doesn't, he doesn't have the charge, really. The humbling is about a man who uh, can't do what he does. Uh, when I got the idea for that book, I'd heard about an actor, who a very skillful actor, who uh, went out on the stage and suddenly couldn't act. And I was hypnotized by that story. And so I decided I would write it. I, I, that was all I knew. So it's about an actor who can't act, and what happens to him in that vulnerable situation. Your new novel, The Humbling, features an actor, Simon Axler, who, who suddenly finds himself in his 60s, as you say, and unable to perform before an audience. And he realizes this is a kind of stock nightmare, you know, going out on stage and being unable to perform. Mm -hmm. It's like walking naked down a street or being in an exam and unprepared. And mm -hmm. Is this a nightmare you've experienced yourself in some way? No. No, I haven't, I haven't found myself unable to write. It's coming, but... Um, well, I don't know why you would say that, well, <laughs> since you've probably been more prolific in the last, I don't know, five, yeah, ten years. Than... Well, uh, but uh, no, I haven't experienced that. No, I was, I was, as I said, I was interested in the predicament of this actor. I knew that it was like a dream. It was a dream situation. And uh, I wanted to explore realistically the dream. Because questions of, of what's real seem to haunt this story. I mean, it's not just the metaphor of acting, because Simon says he can no longer make a role real for himself, mm -hmm. which is itself slightly ironic, because, of course, there's artifice inherent mm -hmm. in, in performing. But mm -hmm. even his perceptions of the people around him, there's the disturbed woman who, with whom he forms a bond at the uh, psychiatric hospital, and, and she believes something terrible that leads her to do a decisive act. And there's still a slight uncertainty of whether... In fact, she's deluded. 
But more importantly, there's the relationship that Simon develops uh, with a, a younger woman, the daughter of old actor friends, who's been living as a lesbian until she enters into this unlikely and intense affair. And there's always the question of whether she's playing for real, whether mm -hmm. their relationship can be trusted. Can you talk about negotiating mm -hmm. the hazards of, of fantasy or the... Or for the fantasy, the, the hazards of hope. Or the, ha the need for pretense, or maybe uh, we should put it that way. Yes, the, the hazards of hope. And the hazards of the unknowability of everyone, that uh, he's trying to grasp what she is. And uh, she's rather candid about herself, but um, his need outdistances his sense of realism. No, there uh, seems to be a mutual need for acting something out, and I uh -huh. use that word uh -huh. deliberately, uh -huh. I think. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what the book adds up to, frankly. When I'm writing the book, uh, I tell myself, it's not your business what it means. That's not my business. My business is to depict it as vividly as I can. Chekhov once said that the duty of the writer is not to solve the problem, but in the proper presentation of the problem. So I want to, I want to present the problem properly, as accurately, as thoroughly as I can. In his final act, Simon sets out to make the imagined real, and without giving it away, I mean, he he chooses in the end to play the role you write for yourself, but one performance only. And it, it's a, a troubling and, and bitter ending, and at the same time, maybe inevitable. Do you see it as tragic? Yes, but he's so defeated. He's so defeated. Defeated in work, and then defeated in love. And uh, he doesn't see what there is to live for. When I was writing this book, I thought, can you convincingly present somebody who commits suicide? Can you get the character to the point where the suicide will seem inevitable? Maybe not the only choice, but a significant real choice. And so I set myself the goal of getting him to that point and depriving him of the staples of life. And But my, the, the goal was to do it convincingly, so it doesn't seem like an arbitrary, an arbitrary ending. So I think it comes as perhaps as a small shock and surprise, but I don't think it seems arbitrary. And certainly he invokes his literary forebears. Yes, well, he, it seems that most plays end with suicide. When he makes the list of plays that end with suicide, it's an impressive list. And the old, if you introduce a gun at the beginning of the Yes, which I did play, do. And you did do, yes. yeah. And it's interesting in terms of you, t you take away love and work, which I think even Freud said that's, that's what we need in life is love mm -hmm. and work. You see it as courageous. Oh, well, that's another story. No. I guess you could say the courageous thing would have been to live. But I, I can't judge it. I can't judge it like that either way. It's, uh, it has its own inevitability for me. Because it, it's not just old age and its humiliations, but, but death itself has been your subject. Is that something you think a lot about? Oh, just every day. Really? Sure. Sure. 
I think over 60, you tend to think of death more than you did when you were younger. And now I'm over 70. In four fleeting years, I'll be 80. That's the decade in which most people, older people, die. So, of course, I think about it. It doesn't, uh, doesn't grip me with terror, by the way. Uh, it's familiar to me. I don't like the idea. My brother died about four months ago. And uh, I find I think about him every day. Um, he was five years older? He was five years older than I am. And uh, he had a difficult demise. And uh, he life really just knocked the crap out of him. And so I watched that. And um, in that he was older than me, he was a staple in my existence. I never lived a day without him until the last four months. So uh, there's no avoiding it. My friends, uh, I see, I see belong to the funeral. I belong to the funeral of the month club. I go to a funeral a month, it seems. Two of my dearest friends died in the last year, both men. And uh, I would say four of my dearest male friends have died in the last two years. So it's hard to keep it out of one's mind. They're sick, they're in the hospital, you visit them, then you get the news that they died. And it's, um, it's, it's uh, quite a change in one's life. What would you have liked to have been if you could live your life again? Hmm. Well, I don't think I would want to be a writer. There are many hard occupations, to be sure. This is one of them. It's very grueling because you're always an amateur whenever you begin a new book. Yes, you've written before, but you didn't write, you didn't write that book before. So you start off with, with scraps. And uh, the first six months of a book are usually extremely frustrating and wearying. Everything goes to pot. Your writing goes to pot. Your imagination is insufficient. You don't know what the hell you're doing. You don't know where you're going. And then when you finish a book, you have to start again and come up with another idea, which is also grueling. So I don't think I would choose to be a writer again. Despite the various gratifications? Yeah, despite the gratifications. And successes which you Yes, have? I have had considerable yeah. success. No, I, I, I don't think I would want a child of mine to do it either. It's too demanding. You, you, you are alone. You're the only person who can make it happen. Nobody can help you. And you have to drag this thing out of you. I find it very difficult. I, I'm sure there are some writers who are, are fluent in the lithoists and, and who, who write the way the birds sing. I haven't met but them. No, I, I Maybe Chekhov did, but uh, I do, I don't. Well, I've often thought that I would have been a good doctor, that I would have enjoyed the contact with my patients, and that uh, I would have gotten gratification from the work itself. The problem is I don't even think in the next life I'm going to be able to do the pre-med course. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm going to be stuck. Zuckerman tries to be a doctor, doesn't he? That's right, in, in the, the anatomy lesson, yes. Well, I took it seriously. I took his desire seriously. Also, I've admired friends of mine who are doctors. I've, I've, I've envied them their work. And um, some of them envy me mine. When you interviewed Primo Levi, you talked to him about those in, infamous words above the gates of Auschwitz, uh, Arbeit macht frei, work makes you free, and what a horrifying parody of work it was. 
but that it was possible to view Primo Levi's entire literary labor as dedicated to restoring to work its humane meaning. And I, I, was, I was thinking the same about you in a, in a sense, because you have worked virtually nonstop writing. Can you say what you want to be freed from? Hmm. Well, you're free, you're freed from the gag in your mouth. All your freedom is in your words. And um, all your freedom is in your narrative. And this is the compensation. That you eventually do make an object out of yourself, a book, all on your own, with no barriers. There's nobody standing in your way. There's nobody telling you what to do. There's nobody who can stop you. So that's freedom. And you buy that freedom at a steep cost, which is the work itself. But you do get a kind of freedom. You no longer live most of the time in the country. You're in, in New York more now. Mm-hmm. How come? Well, uh, I lived out in the country for many, many years, and uh, it's very beautiful there. And I have endless amounts of time. The day is somehow much longer than it is here. And I love the, that particular countryside. There's a wonderful river. There are wonderful walks along the river. The Appalachian Trail runs nearby. But um, I find that the cold months now are just too raw for me. It's up high, and uh, you get a lot of cold weather and a lot of snow. And um, I found in the last five years that I just didn't want to go through that. So I came down to here to New York. I'd always kept a studio here in New York, and I'd come in once or twice or three times a month, and I'd sleep in the studio. But I decided I really wanted a place here. So now I'm here through the winter, and uh, it's good. I have made some new friends. I've picked up some old friends, and um, we have a good time. It's a great pleasure to have the chance, finally, to meet you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Philip Roth at his home in 2009. He died in 2018 at the age of 85. Both The Humbling and Nemesis are available in paperback. Nemesis is also slated for the screen. All of Roth's fiction is published by the Library of America, which also came out with his collected nonfiction, 1960 to 2013, a book called Why Write? In 2020, a six-part miniseries adapted from Roth's 2004 novel, The Plot Against America, was released to great acclaim. It's available on Crave. And Roth left his entire personal library of approximately 7,000 books to his hometown Newark's public library. Many have his handwritten comments, notes, and underlinings. Today's show was produced by senior producer Sandra Rabinovich. Katie Swales is also producer, with thanks to Melissa Gismondi. I'm Eleanor Wachtel. Next week, from China and the UK, novelist, memoirist, and filmmaker Zhaolu Guo. Her 2017 memoir, Nine Continents, won the National Book Critics Circle Award for Autobiography.
It traces her life from a poor Chinese fishing village to Beijing and then England. That's next week. I hope you'll join me. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.